We're hardwired to be discontent. Michael Lewis tells a story of Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneur Jim Clark, who has employed an incredibly successful career, including overseeing the invention of a microchip that made 3D computer graphics possible. Before he launched the company, Clark said, I would be happy with $10 million. Then he launched Netscape, building the world's first mass market web browser. Clark set his eyes a little higher. 10 million, we surpassed that easily. I would love to make $100 million, which he quickly did, and realized that $100 million won't buy you the world's biggest yacht. So he needed to make a little bit more. He had his eyes focused on a billion dollars. That ought to do it and take care of all of his money problems. This figure, too, was short-lived. Clark once again stood on top of the world, creating something called Healthion, a computerized medical clearinghouse, and easily eclipsed the one billion mark. And he said, it's still not enough. He wanted to be worth more than the software mogul Larry Ellison, the co-founder and chief technology officer of Oracle, who at the time of the writing of this article was worth $13 billion. When is $1 billion not enough? But it's not always about the money, is it? On October 1st, 2009, Tiger Woods was named the first athlete in history to eclipse $1 billion himself. He enjoyed the money, he enjoyed the spotlight, and five years ago, the public became aware of something else Tiger Woods enjoyed. Sex. Lots of it. Many consider Tiger Woods to be the greatest golfer who ever played the game. He wasn't just winning tournaments, he was destroying the field. And when he would lead on Sunday and put on his traditional red shirt, people would quake in fear and lasted an incredibly long time of not losing on Sundays if he went in with the lead the first athlete ever to earn a billion dollars. Arguably the greatest golfer of all time, it still wasn't enough, he longed for something else. Maybe a story a little bit closer to home. It's a made up story, but it's a real story. A pastor and one of his church members are going on a walk and the member is craving inner peace, but he can't quite seem to get it. The member asked the pastor, who he deeply respects, how do you always seem so peaceful? You don't get angry, you don't seem bitter, you're always kind to people. How do you do that? They continued along on their walk, and the pastor gently responds, I've learned to be content with whatever God's given me. I'm thankful for my family, for the food on the table, for the roof over my head. What more do I need? They continue to walk together in silence before the church member says, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just so surprised with all the wisdom and all the care for us as a church that the church down the street is growing way faster than us. Did you hear that they're building a brand new auditorium twice the size of ours? We're hardwired for discontent. It's easy to look at other people and see, they have what I don't have. My next door neighbor is planting a rapidly growing church. One of the biggest churches in Edmonton is building a brand new church 300 meters from my home. My brother-in-law is a lead pastor. And one of the members of my small group has the audacity to tell me his kids are in bed and sleeping by 7.30. That just makes me angry. 
What's stealing your contentment this Christmas season? Perhaps you've had a good year of sales, but it's not really the ideal job. This is the second year in a row that your kids and their kids say they're not going to come visit you during Christmas. Perhaps you look around and everybody is so happy during the holidays and you think, they have no idea the struggle and the hurt that I'm going through. Won't people care about me? Why is that mom's home business doing so much better than my home business? I work twice as hard as my friends. Why do they always get better marks on tests? My house and car are really great, but they're not as good as his. Contentment can be a real struggle. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the pew racks. Or if you have an iPad or a smartphone, you can download this Bible app. We would invite you to do that. If you don't own a Bible, the Bibles in these pews are for um, you to keep. If you're in Renew right now and you're thinking, I don't own a Bible, we have Bibles for you that we'd be happy to give you at the info center. For those of you who weren't with us last week, we looked at Luke chapter 1. Verses, one through, uh, verse, verses 26 through 38. So let me get you up to speed. We're going to start in verse 46. This is the birth of Jesus. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, one of Israel's greatest kings. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, what kind of greeting might this be? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be, Mary said. I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. Nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. You can almost hear this sense of gradual acceptance from Mary. The gravity of what's taking place is hitting with full force, and she now needs to adjust to this brand new reality. In my previous environment, we would often have five-minute dramas to share on Christmas Eve to add a special element to the worship service. One year, my friend found a piece about Joseph sharing this big news with his brother. Upon hearing this extraordinary event, Joseph went to his brother and he exclaimed, my wife is going to be, have uh, the son of God as her son. And Joseph's brother exclaims, mother of God. And Joseph says, exactly, that's what I'm trying to tell you. How do you respond when you find out you're the mother of God? This is Mary's song. We'll start in verses 46 to 49. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has been mindful of his humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things. Holy is his name. The very first thing Mary does is give thanks to God. 
Her song actually follows this common theme of giving thanks that we find in other books of the Bible, in Psalms and in Paul's letters as well. She begins by thanking God and then telling him why she's thankful. It says in Psalm 9, verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. We see it again in Psalm 75, verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. In both these instances, the psalm is starting out by saying, God, we praise you. And here's why we praise you. You have done incredible works in our lives. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament letters to different churches and different people who he's ministered to, has that same sort of idea. At the beginning of many of his letters, he begins with, we thank you, God. And then he explains why. We thank you for the church in Colossae. We thank you for the church in Philippi. We thank you for the church in Corinth. And then he explains why he is so thankful. The reason for Mary's joy is simple. A long-awaited Savior has arrived. We started our Christmas series last week by thinking about the awe and wonder that takes place. God has come to earth. No one was expecting that. The Jews were thinking, if the Savior is going to show up, he's going to show up with political power, and he'll be like a Caesar, and he'll bring peace that way. Other Jews thought, no, 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 no. He'll come with military might. He'll be like Alexander the Great, and he'll conquer all of our enemies. That's how the Savior is going to arrive. Instead, the Savior of the world came as a baby, born in a manger, far removed from the palace of a king. His family, soon after his birth, would uh, flee to Egypt where he would grow up in relative obscurity before moving back to Nazareth, some backwater country town that people had no respect for. And yet Mary continues to give thanks. At first glance, you might look at this and think, of course she gives thanks. She is the mother of God. It doesn't get any better than that. But think about that for a moment. For the women in the room, maybe you were pregnant as a teenager, but even if you weren't, how do you tell your parents? Do you think that's a fun conversation? For the parents in the room, your teenage daughter, 14 to 17 years of age, comes up to you and says, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant. How do you as parents respond? 2,000 years earlier, do you think it was any better? Matthew 1.19. Because Joseph, Mary's fiancé, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public shame, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Best case scenario for Mary. She would be hidden from public inside her parents' house for the duration of her pregnancy so nobody would know. Realistic outcome? She'd be put to public shame. No man would want to marry her. She had sex outside of marriage. Worst case scenario, but certainly plausible, would be a public stoning and death. Yet in all of this, Mary continues to praise God, for his plans are bigger than we can imagine. Let's read verses 46 to 50 again. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. 
My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of his humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things. Holy is his name. Verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. You see what, where Mary puts her focus? She doesn't look to her circumstance. She looks to God, and I believe that's how we find contentment. For some people, maybe a statement like that just puts up barriers. Hold up. Time out. The pastor stands on a platform and says, keep your eyes on God. All right. That's really going to happen. It might sound a little bit too churchy. It might almost sound lame. How do we do that? How does that actually help? How is that going to improve my circumstances in any way? It might not. But it'll improve how you think about your circumstances. This past summer, I took my kids to K-Days for the first time. I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and they looked around with wide-eyed wonder at everything that they could do. There was a roller coaster and a Ferris wheel and train rides and planes that go up and down. And because we went on a Friday, the lineups were almost non-existent. But do you think just because they could go on any ride they wanted that that made their, cont- uh, their contentment go away? Nope. It only made them want it more and more and more. Think about your own life. You go on a date with your spouse, you go out with a bunch of friends, and you have a great evening together. How does that evening end? Well, that was nice. We'll do it again in another four months. Or do you think to yourself, I want to do that again. And even though it was great, you don't feel content because now you just want to do it more often. We make good money, but a little bit more wouldn't hurt. I have a really nice car, but that guy's car has a heated steering wheel. That sounds amazing. We're top five in our class, but we're not top three. Focusing on God doesn't mean our challenges go away or our problems suddenly disappear, but it means our priorities get realigned as we enter a spirit of circumstance, of thankfulness. Look to God not your circumstance. Mary continues in verses 51 to 55. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He has filled filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. It is God who does great things. In the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we read about God's people, the Israelites, enslaved to the Egyptians. The book is about God miraculously rescuing them from Egyptian slavery, taking them into the desert and providing for them. He provides for their food. He provides for their clothing. He provides them with shelter, and most importantly, he cares for their souls. And isn't that what we're longing for? Will somebody care for my soul? Psalm 107, verse 9. He satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things. Exodus tells us about how God has rescued his people out of slavery and begins to take them on a journey to the promised land. In the New Testament, starting with the birth of Jesus, we hear that we are rescued from death. 
that we're on a journey to heaven of absolute perfection. But God wants you to begin to unpack and understand what contentment looks like, what the kingdom of heaven looks like right now. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Maybe you think to yourself, come on, pastor. Get out of the books and come join me here in reality. But what if our expectations of this world aren't too big, but rather much too small? C.S. Lewis says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pie in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Our problem isn't that we expect too much of God. Our problem is that we don't expect nearly enough. Which leads us to the second point this morning. A poisoned paradise. What if I told you that the first sin of the world was discontentment? Let me make my case. As we open the Bible, we read of God creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. This is what we read on the sixth day, starting in chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. He's speaking to Adam and Eve. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the, creative, all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for your food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Perfection in paradise. One command. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat from that, you will surely die. This is hard for me to fathom. This is hard for me to wrap my head around. The juiciest, most succulent fruit that you have ever tasted. It's all yours. You have a question for God. He sits down with you in the garden and you talk with him face to face. An unblemished relationship with the love of your wife. No worries about food, about clothing, about shelter. No debt payments of any kind. And Eve looks at the one fruit she doesn't have. She looks at everything else that she does. And she thinks, but I want to try that. The very first sin is one of discontent. Does this sound a little bit familiar? We're single, we want to be married. We're married, we want kids. We want kids to be quiet. We want our kids to leave, but then when we're empty nesters, we want our kids to come back and visit. I like how Gary Thomas describes contentment. Contentment is about resting, about removing ourselves from the vain strivings of this world and thus finding peace and quiet in God's will. To spend less time striving and more time thinking. 
after God used Moses to rescue God's people out of Egypt, they journeyed around the desert for 40 years. They were on the cusp of entering the land that God has promised them. And here's what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Pardon me, uh, chapter 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and decrees that I'm giving you on this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Doesn't that sound like he's talking to us? If you're striving for five-star meals, if you're striving for entertainment, if you're comparing yourself to others, you will never be satisfied. If you're looking for perfect children, if you're thinking, I want just a little bit more money, if you're hoping your relationships are going to be absolutely perfect, you will never be satisfied. If you expect a flawless church, if you think this Christmas is going to be perfect, if you think I'm going to go on a vacation and nothing's going to be wrong, you will never be satisfied. Contentment is found in God. Look to God, not your circumstance. To some people it may sound trite, to some people it might be incredibly meaningful. What if you only had today what you thanked God for yesterday? What if you only have today what you thanked God for yesterday? Most of us are pretty good. It's a meal time and we sit down and we thank God for the meal. But what else are you thankful for? A working furnace? Transportation? A strong back to shovel the ridiculous amount of snow we had last week? We can be thankful for our homes, for families, for entertainment, this church, indoor plumbing. We have religious freedom, we have health care, we have extra bucks to buy Christmas presents and go on vacations. God has given us so much to be thankful for. And when our focus is placed on him and what he has given out of his generosity, we'll spend, time, we'll spend less time thinking about what we don't have. Thanksgiving is kryptonite to discontent. One more comment before moving on. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, holy discontent. How do you know if your discontent is good? What if we ask ourselves this question? Is my discontent focused on me or focused on others? When God looked at the world, he was not happy that people did not have a savior. And so he did something about it. He sent his one and only son down to earth, born of a virgin. Jesus did not give up his divinity. He did not stop becoming God, but rather he took on humanity lived an absolutely perfect life, was, su- uh, was crucified, died and buried. Three days later, rose from the grave. We live in a really, really cold city. And our church is saying, there are people in our community, there may be people in this very church who don't have warm clothes. So let's work together with another church that uses our building in the afternoon and gather together warm clothes for the street store. Perhaps you work for a local business, perhaps you work at home. That business 
you being at home stemmed from discontent. There's a better good to serve. There's a better service to be offered. Some of you in this room have made great sacrifices for your family because you were discontent with the current living situation. As we transition into this final part of our outline and what it means to discover contentment, I want to introduce you for a couple minutes to my friend Funcho. Funcho, where are you, my friend? Funcho and I have been friends for a while. I think we're friends. He doesn't. So this interview is going to be great. Funcho, thank you for coming up. Thank you. Funcho, where do, um, you have a bit of an accent. Where did you come from? Edmonton. <laughs> you came from Edmonton. <laughs> Before you were in North America, where did you live? Lagos, Nigeria. In where? Lagos, Nigeria. In Nigeria. All right. What, did, what was your job in Nigeria? Um, I was working as an auditor with Arthur Anderson. You're wa- working as an auditor, and Anderson, you were telling me, is one of the biggest companies in the world that does auditing. Is that correct? Um, it was not one. It was the number one. The number one? Yes. And your role is the equivalent of a chartered professional accountant there? Yes. So why would you leave Nigeria when you had such a great job? Um, I think two things happened. The first one was the fact that um, Arthur Anderson collapsed. If anyone was aware of the story of Aaron, um, we were auditing Aaron in the U.S. office, and there were some issues, and the government took away the license. And so the Nigerian office became KPMG. It was a big difference for us working in Nigeria because before then, we, we were very arrogant. We thought we were the best thing that could happen to mankind. So when we go to our client, we introduce ourselves as, I'll just say, my name is Funcho, I'm from Anderson. So you need to figure out what I'm here for. <laughs> and when we became KPMG, we started dressing up, we started wearing neckties, we were not doing business casual. Things changed and looking back, it was a form of idol worship. And we couldn't take it. A number of people left. I know people that were there years before me, they actually left because they couldn't just, I saw people crying actually. And so then the opportunity also came for me to go to the U.S. for a master's program that was going to be fully paid. So this being disgruntled and the opportunity to just travel out was something I couldn't say no to. Now, you left Nigeria as the equivalent of a CPA. When you came to North America, were you a CPA? No, (laughs) (laughs) because I had to go back to school. So I had to do a one-year master's program, um, study for my exams, and I had to go start again. I was going to be a fourth year in Nigeria, so I started as a f- first year again in Detroit, Michigan. So you started as a first year. Yeah. I hope I don't embarrass you with this comment, but you already said we're not friends, so it's okay, I guess. <laughs> you once said, I can't just do my job. I can do my boss's boss's job. And yet, as I look at you on Sunday mornings, as we hang out, you're always smiling. You're always in a good mood. How do you have such contentment? Um, This is the way. I think, when I think of Apostle Paul in the Bible, he was born with a zealous mind. Like, even when he was not a Christian, he was zealous in what he was doing. Sometimes I wonder if I was born with contentment. Because growing up, I've always understood that just be grateful to God for what you have. 
when I was in grade six, I was going to go to middle school or what we call secondary school. And they were, there was only one school I wanted to go to where I grew up, Government College Ibadan. And But you also have to have a second choice, so I put a second choice. And I remember that day that I got my admission letter to Government College Ibadan. And I said, so this is all it's all about. Like, so the excitement, the anticipation, there's nothing to it. And so that's always at the back of my mind. Every time something, I want something, I feel like as soon as you get it, it's just going to be another thing. So I've always loved, I've always believed that, okay, thank God for what you have. appreciate him and everything will be okay. And the more I study the word of God, I appreciate Apostle Paul. And he had said it in a way when he talks about, I've learned to be grateful. I've learned to be content when I have and when I don't have. And I think that's the story of my life. Like, I just, I don't let things freak me out. I, I believe I'll be okay with what I have. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Funcho. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Funcho mentioned a man by the name of Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament, and one of the letters that he wrote was to a church in Philippi, and this is the passage that Funcho was referring to. This is Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me, says Paul. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances are. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. About a month ago, I was reading a blog about three different preaching styles, and they said, you have one of these three preaching styles. The first is academic. Someone who is so theologically robust, so versed in the scriptures, reads so widely that you think to yourself, how do you have all these insights as you try to comprehend everything they say? If you turn on the radio, flip to a Christian channel, listen to a podcast, there's people like Ravi Zacharias, Timothy Keller, Charles Stanley, and you just marvel at their insight. Another style is charismatic. People who have so much joy, so much energy, they're great stories, and you think, man, I could just sit back and listen to you forever. Next week, uh, we begin our one service over the uh, next following three weeks. We have Kelsey Eichelt, our children's director, speaking. She has charisma. Don't miss it. The final style is experiential. Men and women who may not know the scriptures quite as well as the academic. They might not be that gifted storyteller, but you know that they have lived a life. You go to one of our ministries like Widow to Widow or Freedom Session, and you hear what people have been through. You come on a Sunday morning and you hear one of our global missions partners speak about what took place in Africa or in Europe or with our First Nations, and you think, wow, that is a story. In a perfect world, one speaker would be all three of these things. There's not many of those people. But the Apostle Paul came close. He's certainly an academic. He has experience down pat, and while he makes fun of himself as a speaker, I'm guessing he packs a punch. He's not just talking about contentment. He has absolutely lived it out. 
He was trained by the greatest religious leader of the time. It would be like learning programming from Bill Gates and then design from Steve Jobs. He lived in the home of a wealthy merchant, enjoying the best comfort money can buy, and he has a pedigree that would impress any politician. He was also rejected by these very same friends when he became a follower of Jesus. And it made great difficulty making new friends because no one trusted him because he used to persecute and kill Christians. He was regularly imprisoned, five times received 39 lashes. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked. On three occasions, he was run out from people. He was in constant danger. This is not an academic exercise of a man who wrote Philippians chapter four. He lived through excruciating pain and turmoil and experienced the best luxury money can buy. And he said, I've learned to be content in both. Doesn't have Netflix, doesn't have a pantry full of food, doesn't have a warm shower at the end of a rough day. But in the absence of all these modern conveniences, the Apostle Paul says, I've learned to be content. Here is someone who has found Jesus and found him immensely satisfying in spite of the terrors he's been through. We could paraphrase the passage like this. I've learned to be content when I've received everything I wanted. I've learned to be, oh, pardon me. I've learned to be content when I got nothing I wanted. I can do either one by the power of Christ. Tucked away at the end of the Old Testament, right before the birth of Jesus, is a short book named after the prophet Habakkuk. The prophet begins his book with this complaint. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help? And you don't listen or cry out to you violence and you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction, violence, they're before me. There is strife and conflict is everywhere. Pretty harsh criticism on God. These are the last two verses. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to great heights. Thanksgiving is kryptonite to discontent. Stephen Altridge writes this, we won't be fully satisfied when we get what we want because God loves us and wants us to find our satisfaction in him. He won't allow us to be satisfied, to believe that we'll finally be happy when we get what we want is a lie. This Christmas season, what are you thankful for? Jesus Christ came down to earth. He came as a perfect example of what it means to be human, an example that we can strive for. And on the night that he was killed, he was in a garden. His disciples were sleeping just a few meters away. And he said, God, not my will, but yours be done. Giving thanks to God for everything that he has done in his life and saying, help me to accept the cup that you have given me. Will we accept the cup that God has given us? Will we be thankful for everything that we have?
And will we, will we recognize that trusting in God and focusing on him will destroy our discontent? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. Much sacrifice has gone into this building. Many people have given of time, given of their money, given so much to make this happen. Even over the last couple of months as we start a brand new service in the West Wing and think about the sacrifice that many of us have given financially, the sacrifice of hours many of us have given to make this happen. So that we could be a church that reach each generation and equips them to reach their generation for Jesus. As we are reminded about the sacrifice that you made for us, may we make great sacrifice for you, being content with what you have given us, being thankful for the Christmas season, and not looking at what others have or what others don't have, but being grateful for what you have given us. And using these gifts, using these talents, using these finances to help others see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. As we give of our tithes and our offerings this morning, we, may we be reminded that this isn't just a percentage of us giving stuff to you. But everything that we have comes from you and we simply give a portion of it back. So God, even as we give, may our hearts and minds be changed. As we enter into the Christmas season, may we be reminded of the work that you are doing. And may you use our talents, our time, our treasures for your glory to see Jesus told about in Ellerslie, in our community, and around the world. We pray this thing in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I'd like to invite the usher.